Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week, we take a couple data points, use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So this week, we have one data point, and that is 79 years which is the average age of the candidates in this year's U.S. presidential election. Age and mental acuity are emerging as key issues in the race for the White House after recent misstatements from both the president and the former president. We're learning more about President Biden's re-election campaign and about how his staff is making adjustments because of the president's age. He is now the oldest president ever elected. President Joe Biden is 81 years old. Donald Trump, his likely Republican challenger, is 77. And Biden's age has especially become a campaign issue with many voters expressing a belief that he might have become too old for the job. And that's been exacerbated by a special counsel report this past week on Biden's handling of classified documents that raised questions about his memory. Either way, the advanced age of both candidates uh, has raised questions about whether there's something more fundamentally wrong with America's political system that it's ended up with political leaders of such advanced ages, so to speak. We thought we'd look into the broader questions, political and economic, raised by gerontocracy, rule by the elderly. So, Adam, I guess a first question when it comes to the relationship between gerontocracy and the economy, I wonder whether capitalism as a system is itself kind of inherently gerontocratic, uh, I guess, to use that word. I mean, as a system, it sort of, through its the mechanism of compound interest and just rates of return on capital, it would seem to sort of accrue advantages over time, which would seem to, I guess, privilege those who are older. So is that relationship a a kind of legitimate one between capitalism and gerontocracy itself? I I thought this was a fascinating question. I think in general, one has to agree with you, right, that the older people are, the, the wealthier they tend to be. And certainly once you cross a certain level of wealth where you're not consuming it so as to be able to sustain yourself, the longer it has to accumulate, the the better. It seems to work in the labour market as well with you know what economists call human capital. It's generally true on average that workers, their returns to human capital, in other words, the returns to their skills and education increase through to their mid-40s and then plateau and inch upwards for particular workers' categories, categories of, of employee. So that generally speaking seems to be true. I think one could push this a little bit further and in fact sort of make this even more stark in that historically speaking, before the advent of the welfare state, it was also true that age exposed inequality in the most extreme way because for that much larger part of the population that was dependent on selling its labour power to survive, the old age, of course, represented an existential threat of immiseration and poverty or, you know, being cast on the charity of your family. And it was, you know, often argued that people had large families so as to ensure a large support network in their old age. And, you know, if you remove the effects of tax and welfare, that that's also a very powerful effect that as people age, the differences in, in wealth and in capital endowment and labor market opportunities become more and more polarized over time. And it's not by accident that the first welfare state provisions in the most affluent societies of the world 
take Germany, the United States and Britain, um, all centered on old age insurance, old age pensions. I mean, there were pensioner systems all the way back to the Middle Ages and the medieval period in the West. But from 1881 in Bismarck's Germany, from 1890 with the introduction of pensions for union veterans from the Civil War, and then in Britain with the introduction of national insurance in 1911, we get a series of experiments, and there are many other countries doing the same kind of thing. I just singled those out because they're particularly large and important, and not the kind of countries you'd expect to be, you know, easily jump into the project of extending the welfare state, but they did. And this is this is the zone that it immediately extended to because it's such an obvious risk to the vast majority of the population. So to shift to the question of elderly political leaders specifically, I mean, have elderly politicians historically managed to be effective leaders? You know, I, I, I was trying to think of examples. The one that came to mind, perhaps no accident, me being in Berlin, is Konrad Adenauer, the West German chancellor after World War II. He, I think, ran for re-election in his, in his 80s and, and was re-elected even after multiple terms into his 80s. Uh, and he oversaw pretty major changes in West Germany, which, you know, didn't seem to hinder him from, from being effective in that way. So are there other examples or am I even sort of misinterpreting the Adenauer example, do you think? Uh, no, it's a fascinating comparison. Adenauer, I believe, was 85 when he won his last election in 1961. And there's this extraordinary image of um, 61 being a significant moment because of the, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Berlin Wall. And there's this extraordinary image of him riding in an open-top cabriolet um, around West Berlin alongside the youthful-looking JFK and um, Willy Brandt, the, you know, his, ultimately his successor as Chancellor. And the, it really does the generational divide in that image is extraordinary because Adenauer was born in the 1870s and came out of the era of Bismarck. I mean, the same astonishing way that, that Joe Biden was was born at the time of the Stalingrad battle, in fact, before the Soviets had launched their counterattack, which again seems as though it, you know, it harks from a different era. Yeah, if that whole generation were rather remarkable, I mean, Winston Churchill uh, won his last election in 1951 at the age of 77. I mentioned Bismarck, he finally went as pushed out of office in the 1890s at the age of 75. So there certainly is a track record amongst senior states figures, if you like, of very, very great longevity. I mean, the fundamental issue here is that you ask about effectiveness. The you know, you can make a case about, I was looking at the one of the Harvard medical websites. They, they say that, that there can be a case made that the branching of dendrites increases in the human brain over time. So connections between distant brain areas strengthen. And apparently the neuro neurologists believe that this enables us to, the aging brain to become better at detecting relationships between diverse sources of information, quote unquote, capturing the big picture and understanding the global implications of specific issues. This is literally from the biomedical website. So perhaps this is the foundation of wisdom. It is as if with age, your brain becomes better at seeing the entire forest and worse at seeing the leaves. So this I thought was the, the most game um, effort to you know, justify and, and uh, rescue the, the aging brain from the condescension of, of youth. But you know, across the board, on average, there are simply racks and racks and racks and racks of medical papers demonstrating that with age, there is both deterioration of mental function and an enormous increase in the risk of neurological, the onset of serious neurological ailments and diseases, right? So a perfectly healthy person, if you just live that long, is going to succumb at some point to one or other type of neurological condition. And so that's the risk, essentially, with, with senior states 
figures that are under huge inhuman levels of stress and sleep deprivation and so on, which has an aging effect on people, that this is compounded in people of very great age. And um, that's, I think, got to just be, I mean, it's, you know, it's sort of a cheap point to make at some level, but it's also undeniable. Well, you make a, a pretty good case that Biden could actually, you know, argue, yeah, on, on the basis of his dendrites, he's actually stronger. Uh, it's a bigger <laughs> picture. It's actually, I mean, the medical site describes it almost in geopolitical terms, will have a more global view, which apparently is mapped in your brain by things being connected more. Exactly. No, that's the old, like Carl, Carl Rove strategy, I remember, was to sort of take a weakness and make it a, make it a strength. So you should run, run on that, run on the dendrites platform. But yeah, I guess I, I wonder from an economic perspective, but even also a political perspective, is there a kind of, you know, given that deterioration you're describing, an argument on the basis of animal spirit, so to speak, to avoiding elderly leaders? And so, you know, economically, could, could a leader who seems out of touch sap economic confidence and could that have material effects or, you know, in a more geopolitical sense, could a sense of weakness begin to set in among foreign enemies and, and, and that have its own material consequences for a country's international position. Yeah, so so one area in which I've encountered this in in you know my former incarnation as a as a historian of Nazi Germany was the figure of Albert Speer, who was uh, Adolf Hitler's armaments minister during the war and not yet in his in his forties at the time. And he had a rule that none of his senior managers should be older than him. Uh, because he believed that they didn't have the requisite charisma and you know energy and but I mean essentially it's a kind of fascistic idea of organisation and and many of his senior team with wiser heads thought this was all a bit ludicrous this emphasis on youth as a precondition for you know energetic virile and dynamic. And at some level, also unreasoning and crazy efforts to optimize the German war effort to the final collapse in 1945. I mean, for somebody of my generation, the the template here is always going to be the late Soviet Union. I'll never forget, actually, the moment when Andropov was succeeded, not by a younger figure. So this was the former head of the KGB who became um, head of the Soviet regime in, in 82, succeeding Brezhnev. And when Andropov was then felled by cancer, he was succeeded by Chernenko. And this series from Brezhnev to Andropov to Chernenko, and then finally the resolution into Gorbachev, I think that was widely seen at the time as symptomatic of the decay of the Soviet regime. But looking back, it's... Um, you know, it's a little bit alarming because they're just not that old. <laughs> you know, by the standards of the present day, Chenenko was 73 when he took office. And Brezhnev, who was an absolute byword for senility and decrepitude, was 75 when he died. Now, I mean, I think that the, the difference, of course, is that they didn't benefit from the luxuries and of modern American healthcare, And they lived tough, tough, tough lives. These were, you know, veterans of World War II, quite literally, and survivors of a heavy drinking, heavy smoking culture, which had much lower life expectancy than, you know, upper class American men today. But nevertheless, that, that certainly was a moment, I think, where the, there was a audible kind of groan around the world as, uh, as Andropov was replaced by Chernenko. Because I think there was the sense that Chernenko clearly wasn't going to be in charge. And so some dark, the deep state, dark hawkish forces in the background would clearly be calling the shots because Chernenko could really be no more than a puppet, ultimately. And um, I think that's also one of the great concerns, right? That in a power, if you're in a situation of power, 
And it seems that the figure who is notionally in charge must really be a figurehead. Then the real question is who's in control behind, you know, who's driving it. I mean, of course, there is the possibility there's, there's just chaos and a vacuum. But since that seems an implausible thesis, the real issue is who's pulling the strings. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here right now, but we will be back in a second to continue talking about gerontocracy. So in a broader political sense, I mean, I'm curious... How does the fact that we're all living longer, I mean, you know, in a, in, a, in a broad demographic sense, life expectancy is going up in countries around the world and in democracies specifically. And I'm curious, how does that fact affect democratic decision making on economics? Uh, I mean, I wonder, is there a greater pressure to serve elderly interests via prioritizing pensions and social security? And at the same time, is then there a corollary underinvestment in education or other productive government services? Is there data to show there's a, a relationship there between um, yeah, democratic policy and, and aging societies? Yeah, this is a very important phenomenon, I think. I mean, when those welfare states were introduced at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, the life expectancy at birth was in the 40s and the median age of death was in the 50s. So a promise of a pension at 65 was a promise of a pension for folks that got lucky and made it that far, and that was a small minority of the population. Obviously, over time, this has dramatically changed with life expectancies stretching into the 70s and high 70s and even beyond in the most rich and affluent societies. The period of retirement after working gets longer and longer. And as the overall population ages, those voices become stronger and stronger in politics. And it is a fact about the welfare states of almost all the affluent societies in the world is that their spending is heavily weighted towards the older segments of the population. For the US, the figures are about a ratio of two to one for spending on elderly folks per annum as opposed to spending on children. And that's if you include education, if you take education out and simply focus on things like food stamps and family benefits and tax relief for poor families, the ratio goes in federal spending as high as seven to one. So on average in 2015, the US government, the federal government spent about $35,000 per elderly person in social security and Medicare. It was spending $5,000 per child on food stamps, Medicaid, and tax credits. And if you add elementary and secondary school in, that's about $11,000 per pupil per year. So that would be a two-to-one ratio all in and a seven-to-one ratio for just basic benefits and health. Uh, in Europe as well, that we see the same discrepancies. And interestingly, this is this is a kind of historical dynamic because... As societies began to age and welfare states were still in their early stages, in the 50s and 60s, pension of poverty was a huge problem in many affluent countries um, in Europe as well. And there's been a very substantial adjustment of this. So nothing I'm saying should be taken as a critique of the efforts that were made to rescue elderly people from poverty. 
and notably now, for instance, in the UK, where elderly poverty used to be a really chronic shame on society, the condition of elderly people is, and this is now the shame, much better than working families. So, and the same is true of Italy as well, where there is a chronic bias in the welfare state towards the elderly. And you can make a case for this on kind of justice grounds in that in due course, everyone will be elderly. So the young now who are not being supported much um, will in due course, of course, themselves benefit from the from the pensions extended to elderly. But in the meantime, and this is really the critical issue from an economic point of view, uh, spending on young children is simply the most economically effective way of using public funds. There is nothing we could do. There's no infrastructure we could build. There's no stimulus we could launch that in the long run would be as beneficial as early childhood education and raising kids out of poverty. And so there is here a huge open goal and a great missed opportunity. And there were, in fact, discussions in Germany where these sorts of constitutional balloons sometimes get flown. But 20 years ago, there were debates in the Bundestag about introducing some sort of waiting system for voting in the franchise, such that the elderly's share of the vote would be progressively squeezed um, in favour of young families that were the future of the country and whose interests in a system in which the elderly have most money, the elderly have uh, a larger and larger share of the population, and they frankly turn out to vote more often because they're less busy and come out of relatively politicized cohorts from the mid-centuries. The baby boomers lived through the classic era of post-war democracy, that there was a structural bias that needed to be corrected. It didn't go anywhere, but it was actually a bipartisan cross-party proposal that was discussed in the Bundestag. And some sort of redress uh, would seem to be, you know, something like a sort of independent monitor that assessed the relative intergenerational bias of spending would seem like an important corrective to have in increasing the age of societies because it is ultimately on the productivity of those in working age that the pensions that those in retirement enjoy, that they, it depends on their productivity. Yeah, I'm curious about what options young people have for responding to this system that privileges the elderly then. I wonder, do they tend to turn to labor mobility? Do they leave countries with this structure for more dynamic societies? Is there data on that? And if that is a trend, is that a sustainable fix? I guess on, you know, you're suggesting on the on the side of the country they're leaving, it's not sustainable, but are there enough countries for them to go to, I guess, uh, as well, if that's in fact something that young people tend to do? I mean, what we tend to see at the international level is rather the reverse, because um, richer societies are older societies. And people want to migrate from poorer societies to richer societies. And so, I mean, one of the conceivable futures of rapidly aging societies in Europe, for instance, is to import large numbers of migrants from Africa, who on the whole tend to be younger, as care workers for the aging white Western European population. I mean, that's, a, I think, a scenario that demographic labor market planners have actually very actively on their minds in which case you would see a draining of the, especially in the medical side, um, you know, a brain drain of trained medical professionals, carers, nurses, paramedics, and doctors from poor countries to rich countries where extremely affluent elderly people pay for human services. I think that's a, that's a more plausible scenario. Where we do see the, the logic that you were spelling out, namely kind of young people fleeing elderly areas, is within countries 
And this is the sort of um, left behind areas kind of logic, right? So in the United States right now, the median age of people living in rural areas is 43 compared to the median age of people living in urban areas, which is 36. And so there we have a logic whereby um, it's not the only thing going on. There's also a reverse flow whereby elderly people retire to the countryside. But there clearly is a dynamic in which, um, you know, relatively highly educated, upwardly mobile younger people leave rural areas to move to the cities. This is the classic pattern. We see it all over the world to raise their productivity, to, to maximize the benefits of their human capital in urban areas, leaving the rural areas increasingly old and drained of their human capital, which leads, results then in a cumulative process of decline in those areas. And where you are in Germany and all around Berlin, you see this on a really dramatic scale because Berlin is obviously at the center of what used to be East Germany and East Germany from World War II onwards, and then continuing even after Germany was unified, drained highly educated young population to the rest of Germany, in other words, to Western Germany. And uh, this has happened on an absolutely gigantic scale. Um, Die Zeit, the weekly newspaper in Germany, brought a piece recently where they tracked this for the Thuringian city of Suhl, which is a former sort of weapons manufacturing town, traditional industrial center, whose population between 1990 and 2017 fell from 56,000 to 35,000 as the share of people over the age of 65 rose from 10% to 30% of the population. So essentially what happened in that town in Thuringia is that in the end, 20,000 young people left and the population demographic shifted as the, power, the city shrank. And that's, that's something we see repeated you know, across advanced societies. And it results in, you know, the correlation between various types of politics of resentment are then centered in places which feel as though they've shut out of the dynamic of growth and so on. Finally, I wanted to ask about the capacity for political systems that are gerontocratic, that are privileging the elderly to to change. And I guess I wonder in a broad sense whether revolutionaries, people who propose and enact sweeping change tend to be young. And I mean, I, I don't I, I don't know what history suggests, but at the same time, I, I, I look at Trump, who's running for re-election, uh, who served as president once, and his advanced age doesn't seem to be hindering him from proposing vast changes to how the United States operates. And I, I don't know if that's an outlier in, in some historical sense, or whether, yeah, whether the elderly can also oversee kind of sweeping change in, in a political system? Yeah, this is a really quite fundamental question. I mean, I mean, if you look around the world in the last 15, 10, 15 years, and you look at, you know, brave movements of popular uprising, they do tend to be led by young people. Think of the A4 revolution or the so-called A4 revolution in China in response to the late stage of the COVID crackdown, which was led by students waving sheets of A4 paper, or the Arab Spring, which was a classic kind of youth revolt very young societies in North Africa, in the Middle East, which, you know, where the young people see precious little opportunity. I mean, you could, from a kind of rationalist point of view, say it's not surprising, right, that young people would be willing to take the risks of revolutionary change, because they're also going to live long enough to actually experience the benefits of those changes. 
And that logic taken to its ultimate extreme was what inspired um, the extraordinary figure of Alexander Bogdanov, who was one of the leading cultural theorists of the Russian Revolution of 1917. And his response was to say, look, you know, there's a grotesque, great historical injustice in the current generation, be they young or middle-aged, paying the price for the revolutionary changes that will benefit humanity in the form of communism. So what we ought to do is create physiological collectivism. And what that meant is that Bogdanov became one of the world's first exponents of blood transfusion, of life extension. So if you're going to have a revolution which changes the world permanently, there's a huge historic injustice that the older revolutionaries die, like Lenin, before they see the achievement of the revolution. So what we should do is equal this out by creating giant blood banks, which will allow people to transfuse themselves with young blood and therefore live forever and experience and benefit from the advantages of the revolution. I kid you not, this was this science fiction. And Bogdanov was the first person really to engage in large-scale blood transfusion on himself or the first prominent figure. And he ultimately died by transfusing himself with the blood of somebody who had TB. This wasn't just a thought experiment. It was actually... No, no, this was the real deal. He experimented on himself. Like so many of the life extension people, he's actually kind of willing to do these crazy experiments on himself. I mean, obviously, that's rather further down the conceptual end of the line than, than, you know, the choice between Biden and Trump. I mean, offenders of Biden would say, you know, we're not doing him credit. I mean, the guy... The guy has actually presided over a rather radical administration and, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act is hailed as this breakthrough. Bidenomics is this mad, dramatic experiment in economic policy. And that's because Biden does have a kind of blood bank, right? It's not Biden doing this. It's his younger staff. They skipped a generation in the democratic hierarchy, they say, right? So we moved on past the people that moved from the Clinton to the Obama administration. So within the Democratic Party establishment, there really was a transfusion of new blood, quote unquote. And those people created an economic policy that made Biden in some ways one of the more innovative economic policy presidents of the recent decades. Certainly a fundamental break with Obama and, and Obama was very tightly connected to Clinton. So I think that would be the, the their defense. On the Trump side, I mean, I think it's a little harder to say where that young blood of intellectual Republicans are. It's tempting, if one's not going to be too catty, to ask the other question of exactly what is Donald Trump's mental age. I mean, maybe maybe his revolutionary throw all the toys out of the pram kind of impulse reflects, you know, an emotional and intellectual age, which is you know, rather, you know, perhaps not that of a, what was he, 77-year-old man, which at some, some level can be quite charming. I mean, the guy is clearly dynamic, and that's part of, I think, the unhinged nature of his rhetoric that people rather enjoy and makes him at some level, I think, a much more competent performer than Joe Biden, who seems wooden and mechanical at his best. And at his worst, he just seems like a toy that's, you know, whose battery has run out. Trump doesn't exude that kind of energy, but that may, that kind of, you know, indeterminacy, shall we say, of his emotional age may may have something to do with, you know, answering this question you're posing. Hmm. That is food for thought. I mean, yeah, I, I wonder whether, you know, that, that point about elderly not being around to enjoy the benefits of sweeping change cut, could cut the other way. Like, you know, maybe <laughs> Indeed, yeah. it's also they're not around to face the downside. So, you know, after us, ab- the deluge. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Deluge, so maybe, yeah. you know, absent the kind of values that would that would, you know, instill hope in the future, you know, there's a kind of nihilistic childishness to Trump sweeping changes that he proposes. 
But anyway, between dendrites and blood transfusions, there's a there's a whole uh, there's a whole platform here for Biden to to suggest maybe that could reinvigorate him maybe. But but in any case, we should end the conversation here. We'll be back as always next week. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tady, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us, podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.